Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Today, we're bringing you interviews with two key U.S. Army leaders in Europe. Later in the program, our conversation with Brigadier General Joe Hilbert on how the 7th Army Training Command is helping U.S. and allied forces in Europe step up their high-intensity warfighting skills. But first, at the Association of the United States Army's recent conference and trade show in Washington, D.C., we met with Major General James Smith, the commander of the U.S. Army's 21st Theater Sustainment Command, headquartered in in Kaiserslautern, Germany, that serves as the logistical backbone of U.S. and allied forces in Europe and Africa. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And Rafael USA sponsored our coverage uh, of AUSA 2021. Here is our conversation with Major General Smith. And it is my honor to welcome on the program United States Army Major General James Smith, who is the Commanding General of the 21st Theater Sustainment Command, uh, certainly one of the most important uh, U.S. military commands and certainly in Europe that provides the logistical backbone, uh, not just for uh, the United States Army, but also for our NATO allies uh, and partners. Sir, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Vargo, thanks a lot and uh, glad to be on board and be part of this uh, session. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, You know, this is uh, something that's been a long time coming. Uh, You know, your two predecessors, uh, General Shapiro as well as General Mohan, uh, did a terrific job in sort of re-gearing to a great power mindset, uh, getting to that logistical posture that may be highly contested. Uh, I know that that's uh, your top priority as well. How, what are your priorities for the command? How are you continuing this transformation journey? And what are the capabilities you need to deliver uh, given that you're up against an adversary that is highly adaptive, uh, hard, highly intelligent, and is going to be actually putting you in a position to do logistics on a move uh, in a way that we haven't seen in decades? Yeah, great question, Vago, and, and, and appreciate uh, the opportunity to answer it. And so first and foremost, you just named uh, two great logisticians that, uh, that preceded me and commanded the 21st, and uh, they left us, uh, as well as U.S. Army, Europe, and Africa, in, in great shape. And now it's an opportunity for me to, to pick up where they left off and, and continue on. Uh, really what I see in front of us is is making sure that the U.S. Army Europe and Africa commander as well as the UCOM commander has options uh, in, in the context of uh, creating a credible deterrent force against uh, any adversary, uh, so to speak. And for me, primarily what that means for the 21st Theater Sustainment Command uh, is ensuring that w- the theater is set. So we call it setting the theater, and we do that in the competition phase uh, that we find ourselves in right now. And when I talk about setting the theater, what I'm really referring to is making sure that we have all of the commodities that we would need to sustain the warfighter uh, in a position uh, that uh, that the warfighter that we can actually extend what I would call the operational reach of the of the warfighter. Uh, and we do that through a host of different. Uh, uh, venues. Uh, so one is uh, pre-position stocks. So we want to make sure that Army pre-position stocks are in place, uh, are, are established and, and set uh, to, to the point that we could rapidly issue these pre-position stocks to units that would uh, rotate uh, and uh, and fall in on them. Uh, another uh, 
line of effort that we're working on right now is really ensuring that we don't have any barriers in terms of movement of equipment and supplies through what we call the reception staging onward movement uh, process. And so what that means is, as you know, in the European theater, there's a lot of uh, countries and borders that we would have to cross to get from one point uh, to, the, to the next. And the time to figure out where the friction points are is really now, not when we have to, to move the equipment. And so we're working very, very hard in that regard across uh, all of our NATO uh, allies and our partners to ensure that uh, we understand you know, the host nation uh, rules and regulations, uh, and we've created agreements that would rapidly move military equipment uh, from one place to the next. What are some of the cultural changes that are going to be re required here? Um, at the Air Force Association show, we talked to General Kober Harigian, who is the uh, United States Air Force's uh, Europe and Africa commander. And one of the things he said is, look, I mean, we're all working together, and uh, we, we discussed your command as well, on how to, you know, what are the right things to put in the right places? What are the things that we can live without? Um, and how to actually think through this problem, especially, God forbid, when the shooting starts, right? Sure. Because all of these stockpiles and prepositioned uh, areas are now more visible and known to an adversary sure. in, a, in an era of ubiquitous surveillance. From what is the cultural, mental approach that we need to take to this? And how much more work is required for us to try to get this right? Because in an era of hypersonic munitions, I mean, you're five minutes away from being being hit by something. Okay. I would take the cultural aspect uh, just in, in, in two different uh, veins. The, the first one is the culture shift uh, that we talked about before prior to the interview and, and really coming out of 20-something years of uh, counterinsurgency operations. Uh, there's a huge culture shift and a mindset, mindset that we've got to make sure that we understand uh, and, and adapt to with respect to large-scale combat operations. So that would be the first cultural shift that we had that we need to have because uh, now when you're talking about the introduction of large maneuver forces into a theater of operations that's um, uh, far from where we were you know fighting in in uh, in southwest asia so that's the that's the first cultural shift the second cultural shift uh, is i don't and i wouldn't even call it a cultural shift because it's been in existence for a while but uh, just really making sure that we understand that we are going to do this together you know the usraf model is stronger together and we are much stronger when we're working with our allies and, and partners and so uh, the culture that I'm still trying to push uh, and continue to push that has existed uh, you know, way before my arrival is the fact that you know, we have to be nested with our allies and partners uh, to accomplish any mission you know, in, the, in the European theater. And in order to do that, uh, we have to achieve a sense of, of interoperability. And I say interoperability, uh, we have to understand you know, what each of us are, from a country perspective, are bringing to bear uh, you know, into into the theater, and some of the you know, some, I wouldn't call them friction points, but you know, some of the things that we're we're continue to work through uh, is is one, we have to understand you know who's coming, when they're coming, where they're coming to, and which roads they're traveling down, right. and and all of that has got to be. Uh, integrated into one master plan as opposed to separate and distinct country plans. And I think, uh, you know, us working alongside our allies and partners, uh, really understanding which each, what each host nation brings to bear, uh, how we can integrate that into an overarching plan uh, will be better uh, for all. You're the person downstream who's dealing with upstream decisions on procurement, right? So whenever we go to non-standard equipment, whenever we get unnecessarily complicated and we think, oh, you know, this is better performance, mm -hmm. you at the far end of it has got to get that to somebody and that 
people are under fire while they're doing this ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the mindset that we need and the approach and the acquisition approaches we need? Are we spending as much time considering what the logistical footprint of what we are deploying is going to be? Because we didn't seem to really care all that much about it because we were in a relatively uncontested environment in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, that doesn't go for folks who were manning fuel and, and other mm-hmm. uh, supply runs that did uh, end up paying a, a, the ultimate price in some cases. Are, are we doing enough of a job to make sure that your life is easier downstream in the upstream decisions? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the Army is, is, is actually you know, leading the efforts in, in that regard. Uh, and there, you know, there's several initiatives that are out there that, uh, to your point, would make the the life easier of an operational commander. Uh, things, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just I'll just start with, with with the first one. So, you know, there we have multiple variants of of trucks in in the army, and so we are working a program right now, or at least uh, you know, trying to develop the requirements for a program uh, to basically you know create what we call a common tactical truck. So if you think of all the different variants of trucks that we have and all the different mission profiles we have for our tactical wheel vehicles, uh, what we'd like to do is converge all of those, uh, you know, those different cabs into one common tactical truck uh, to the best extent that we possibly can. And then the, the change in the mission profile on the back end would be the, the change in whatever they carried, whether it was class three bulk fuel, whether it was palletized cargo, or whether it was a dump truck. That mission profile on the back end would be uh, different, but the truck, the cab in and of itself, would be the same. What that does for us on the, you know, on the operational side is it actually reduces the amount of spare parts that we would need, thus reducing the amount of of uh, lift assets that we need to to move it. It creates a, a common authorized stockage list uh, for a specific variant of truck, as opposed to having to carry parts for a, for a bunch of uh, different uh, trucks. Uh, another line of effort that we're working right now is just, you know, is really called demand reduction. As we get into, you know, our, you know, the, the demand reduction thought process, how can we reduce uh, the amount of trucks that we need on the battlefield? Uh, and part of that is, you know, high, um, electrification uh, of vehicles because as you electrify you know uh, engines and and, uh, and and trucks in that regard what you're doing is you're reducing the class three uh, fuel demand on on a battlefield and that's less trucks that we have to move less soldiers that are on on the road uh, uh, moving it um, as well and the last line of effort uh, at least that I will I'll highlight in this forum is uh, in addition to you know the common tactical truck what we're also doing is uh, leveraging autonomous capability. And so uh, if you think of our current palletized loading system, we've got tests underway right now in the Army that really uh, applies a group of sensors and cameras uh, to a vehicle that will enable us to create what we call a leader follower uh, program. And so you'll have a vehicle that will uh, will lead uh, potentially a convoy of vehicles unmanned uh, into a final destination to, to deliver supplies on the battlefield. And so just cr- just think about the, um, the game changer that that's going to be uh, when you have, uh, you know, uh, vehicles that are, that are moving along a main supply route uh, and being controlled by somebody who's not even in the, in the cab of the, of the vehicle, potentially. So, I mean, everybody understands that our army in the field consumes vast amounts of supplies, as we saw in Iraq sure. and Afghanistan. But in a high-intensity, big army context... Every armored division is consuming, you know, I, I remember this from my early days as a reporter, almost mm-hmm. an aircraft carrier's worth of supplies a month. Mm-hmm. And that's now you're going to have multiple divisions in the field. Mm-hmm. Artillery divisions use up even more yeah. uh, resources. Are you, 
are, are you going back to Cold War basics here and reviewing battle plans and things like that to see how earlier generations managed to do this? Because the infrastructure we had was much, much stronger right. back then, right? I mean, we had port facilities that were designed to accept tanks and stuff. You know, we're not doing that as much anymore. I mean, do we have that? How are you thinking about this? And how are you going to the past for lessons about what we should be doing in the future? Yeah, sure. So great, great question. Uh, so, so two things. One, we are going back and reviewing, you know, some of the history, you know, that has brought us to where we are right now, understanding that we are, tra we've transitioned to really focusing on large-scale combat operations and aligning with uh, the, the national defense strategy. What I'll tell you is what we won't be able to do is build the mountains and mountains of, of iron and, and, and supplies that we had uh, before. And so we really have got to leverage our logistics programs uh, and ensure that uh, and ensure that we can introduce the requisite amount of sustainment that we would need into the into the theater. Uh, I don't think I don't think we will have the same amount of time that we may have had to to, to build up forces. Uh, that's that's me speaking. And so and so we've got to make sure that we can sustain a large fighting force, but not necessarily uh, build up the same stockpiles of, of uh, commodities that we had uh, had before. And uh, talk to us about uh, a program that uh, General Mohan was, was proud of, which is uh, a um, many, many line long portable pipeline that you can use to move yeah. fuel because you don't realize how important something like that is sure. until you don't have it. Talk yeah. to us about that program yeah, and no, why sure. it's so important. No. So the Army uh, several years ago you know, did a, did a study and created what they called the large-scale combat operation or the Let's Go Gaps. And so there was 18 gaps, uh, and the one that you're referring to is gap number four uh, and, and our ability to move Class Three bulk uh, supplies. And so as we look at our theater that we're operating in, one thing that we know is we, we need to augment our current capability uh, with respect to Class Three bulk. And so uh, there's, a, there's a program underway that uh, we're working with the Department of Army to, uh, to gain uh, additional capability. It's called the Early Entry Fuel Distribution System, and there's some other tactical uh, petroleum terminals that we're that we're looking at. And then what what that goes back to is my earlier comment of being able to extend the operational reach of our maneuver warfighters. And so uh, a lot of effort uh, and and a lot of planning uh, going away to to really close the gap in that regard. Sir, thanks very much. Uh, I think you're leading one of the most uh, interesting uh, units in the entire United States military. Best of luck to you, and hopefully we will uh, visit with you next year. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. And a word from our sponsors. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage. L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All-Domain Command and Control. And Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. Also at AUSA, we met with Brigadier General Joe Hilbert, the commander of the 7th Army Training Command, headquartered at Tower Barracks in Germany. The command plays a key role in preparing U.S. as well as allied forces for high-intensity combined arms warfare as the NATO alliance works to bolster its capabilities to deter potential Russian aggression. Here's our conversation with Brigadier General Hilbert. And it is my honor to welcome to the program United States Army Brigadier General Joe Hilbert, who is the commander of the 7th Army Training Command in uh, Grafenwehr uh, in Germany, uh, a training center that was built uh, in the crucible of the Cold War to prepare uh, not just the United States, but also German Army. Uh, indeed, it's a German Army uh, training base, uh, and it is also a key NATO uh, capability as well, sir. Thanks very much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Uh, an absolute honor and pleasure. Uh, you are uh, definitely uh, in a key position 
transition at a time when the uh, United States uh, in Europe uh, and around the world is stepping up its great power game. There's no more great power uh, place than uh, Grafenwehr uh, and Hohenfels, uh, some of the world's finest training complexes. Talk to us about the curriculum uh, that you are now employing to prepare a new generation of warriors uh, to deter and to really get into a great power mindset after 20 years of counterinsurgency in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, so that's a, that's a great uh, wide, wide question, but um, you know what, we're, we're employing a lot of techniques that we would call uh, classical techniques, right? I mean, if you're, if you're gonna shoot a rifle, if you're gonna shoot a howitzer, if you're gonna shoot a tank, the physics of that, has, that, that hasn't changed that much, right? Uh, the ballistics are the ballistics and you've gotta be prepared to shoot that. So whether that's a flat range on an M4 or some sort of uh, multi-purpose complex range where uh, you're gonna shoot multiple weapon systems at multiple targets, you're gonna have that. Um, so there's that, but then we're also, um, we, we've expanded the training area, if you will, uh, to incorporate um, everything from uh, the entire operational environment. So uh, if you think about Hohenfels, where we do our live force-on-force -force training, um, that's, that's not just going to be tank-on-tank, Bradley-on-Bradley, um, uh, howitzer-on-howitzer, but it's going to be like we would have to fight in Europe. And so there's a, there's a component of a civil population there, there's a stability component as well as offense and defense. Um, but then, you know, we, you, you also have to train and, and work at ranges. So, you know, that, that's the live portion of it. The reality is the depth of the battlefield is so much deeper, that's where you have to build out the constructive portion of it. Right. So we, I think we truly do in 7th ATC, um, because we have to, a, a, a good blending of live, virtual, and constructive training um, at Echelon. Uh, and, and, and you guys are also integrating, right, a cyber component to that, a space component to that. You also have an air component, right? Talk to us about actually the broader uh, training curriculum you're putting people into uh, so that folks are experiencing, you know, sort of the NTC-like uh, curriculum a little bit, but over in Europe instead of having to go all the way to California to do it. And how you're using ranges in other allied and partner countries as well, because people have a tendency of thinking what you're doing, where you're doing it, as opposed to actually continental. Right, so, so when you look at our combat training center program, whether it's NTC at California, JRTC, JMRC uh, in Europe, um, we, we, we have the same charter and the same, so the difference in JMRC is uh, it is training in a European environment. It is uh, a, an environment that is informed, whereas the other two environments can be agnostic. And we can take a threat um, that is an agnostic threat, and really you can prepare for contingency anywhere. In our case, we prepare for European contingencies. And so uh, that's, that's the live environment. When, when we look at our larger exercises uh, across Europe, again, we, we, we incorporate the constructive piece. Um, but we also got to train with our allies and partners and build their preparedness too. And that gets to what you're talking about, the ranges uh, beyond Grafenvier, beyond Holmfels. Um, it's, it's not a mystery. Holmfels is the smallest combat training center by geographical landmass. But when we open it up constructively, um, we've, we've got all of Europe to play with. We connect it with other training centers and it's not uncommon for us to do an exercise where the brigade that's in the box is live in the box and on the flank north and south are brigades in two other European countries in a constructive environment fighting underneath a multinational division uh, there in Hohenfels with it, uh, you know, they're under the mission command of a, of, uh, of a multinational division, be it a, a NATO MND or like our last rotation where we had third UK providing the high con. Um, 
And so that's that's one of the ways that we that we expand what is a small training area into a large one. If you look at Grafenvir, again, smaller uh, by comparison to U.S. standards, but it's not the only place where we train just for that live uh, that live you know ballistic solution of the tank, right? So we have an exportable training capability where we can set up uh, those ranges anywhere in Europe with any of our allies, and what it allows us to do is to show how we construct our live ranges alongside our allies and partners, and we build a capability together. Uh, and I think, it's, I think it's pretty powerful when you have a NATO of 30 members that uh, can't just fight together, but in order to fight together, we got to train together. And we do that uh, through our established Grafenbeer Holmfels training infrastructure, but also when we export our training infrastructure, whether it's the CTC, JMRC, going to another country and setting up for a force-on-force exercise, or whether it's training support activity Europe that runs our ranges and being able to export our training uh, devices and our simulations devices throughout any European country and even now down into Africa with the merger of US Army Europe and Africa. Right, uh, absolutely, a vast geographic uh, area. Um, one of the uh, two questions, one is, what do you additionally need technologically, right? I mean, you're coming here in order to see a lot of the capability, uh, certainly see the hardware that will be going into the U.S. Army inventory, but also the technology and the training technology here, some of which which is um, amazing. What are some of the technological modernization efforts that you've put your target on? What are some of the technologies you'd like to see incorporated into the command? Yeah, so, so for me, the key is interoperability. Okay, so I want, uh, when I look at training devices and simulations, number one, I want to replicate uh, as close to the weapon system and as close to the combat systems as we can uh, in a replication, right? So uh, it's got a, the training device has to replicate real life as close as it possibly can so that the soldier doesn't know the difference of, of the, you know, of live or, you know, the old commercials, is it live or is it Memorex? I want the soldier to have that, uh, that kind of experience. But I also know that uh, if, in, in my environment, in Europe, everything I do is with allies and partners. Everything I do is allies and partners. So not only do we have to have interoperable weapon systems, we also have to have interoperable training devices and simulations. So I'm really looking and I want to hear that this simulation system is also compatible with something that may be uh, manufactured by some European country that I know our European allies have. Um, that, I don't think that's a far stretch for us. And I think that if we're going to be interoperable under the NATO structure of you know the human, the procedural, and the technical domain, we can't just think of the technical as the actual weapon system or our C4I systems. It's our simulation systems as well. They've got to be compatible with what our allies are creating and what we've also uh, um, what we've also sold to our allies through FMS sales or even when they're doing direct commercial sales. Um, one of the things uh, that's critical to being a good trainer is knowing what the state of the threat is and what your adversary is working on. Uh, Russia is uh, advancing very rapidly and fielding new kinds of capabilities. Uh, as uh, the person who's in charge of a very important training command, um, what are some of the things the Russians are doing that are then driving in turn you to change your curriculum, right? I mean, you said a lot of this is blocking and tackling and good old-fashioned soldiering that you're training people into in a combined arms fashion. I would like to remind our audience there were massive operations that were happening in Iraq and Afghanistan that were actually combined arms uh, exercises. So those skill sets didn't necessarily uh, atrophy if it wasn't even at the, uh, I mean, although those guys involved in it as you were, was pretty, pretty kinetic and pretty sporty as well. What are some of the things that the Russians are doing 
doing that are then in turn driving how you're doing and changing your curriculum to adjust accordingly? Yeah, so I, I think we look at what's often been called gray zone conflict or, uh, you know, conflict below the threshold of conventional conflict. We don't need to look any further than what happened in eastern Ukraine, annexation of Crimea, um, uh, invasion of Georgia in 2008, right, seven and eight. Um, you know, so so you've clearly got these proxy uh, proxy forces and proxy threats and unattributable or hard to harder to attribute actions that happen. And so we we definitely want to see that inside our training environment, so that our forces are understanding how to compete in there. We also know that we got to compete in the information space. So look no further than cyber attacks up in Estonia, um, meddling in democratic elections, uh, and not just in the U.S. But I tell you, that was a concern for a recent German election too. Just talking to my neighbors there. So we know we've got to compete in the information space. And we know that we've got to compete in a, in a space where um, our adversary might be using means that are less than attributable. Uh, and so we incorporate that into, and we know that that'll all happen uh, at, you know, at all times inside of conflicts. We, we incorporate that into the exercises and in the scenario. And then, and then candidly, uh, we, we remind all our training officers, we're, we are training in the competitive layer. And don't think that we're not being watched, that we're not being observed, and the training that we're doing is not, uh, it's not of interest, or I mean it is not, not of interest, it is absolutely of interest, right, we'll, we'll, we'll remove the double negative, it's absolutely of interest to our adversaries, they're watching it, and they're watching how well we conduct it, and uh, you know, the goal of it is uh, we're prepared, and we're prepared and therefore that we create that deterrent effect through, pre through preparation. Um, do you, uh, so that's a, you know, there, there isn't an army leader, a military leader that's not also a tough judge of your own performance, but also a pretty good judge of what an adversary capability is when you see it, especially you, uh, since you're in this business. Um, are the force, are what we're telegraphing to them sufficiently deterrent? Are you satisfied with the performance of the folks who are going through the curriculum? And conversely, you know, there's always debate about how good the Russians are. Um, how, how good are they from uh, the professional eye of a professional soldier? Let's, let's start with the adversary. Um, are, are the Russians improving? The, the reality is, is uh, they're thinking and they've learned from their own mistakes. They learned from Chechnya, they learned from Georgia, they learned from Ukraine, Crimea. They even learned from uh, what they did up in uh, you know, Estonia with uh, cyber attacks and other. So, so and, and Syria also. And Syria, they absolutely, they've gone to school in Syria, right? So, so we're dealing with an adversary that's a thinking adversary, that's a learning adversary, and they're trying to adapt and they're trying to incorporate their own lessons learned. Um, they're also not 10 feet tall and 700 pounds, right? I mean, this is a defeatable adversary, okay? Um, and, and what I see from our allies and partners is uh, an ability to compete and an ability to win in this environment, hands down. Um, we're, you know, if I look at the NATO alliance alone, we're, we're, we're 30 united members. Um, we're, we're 30 members with, with common goals and, and purposes. Um, and I watch our training and I watch improvement in our training in every exercise, right? Uh, day 10 is always better than day one because we're thinking and we're learning and we're applying lessons learned. Um, all that said, the, the quote that just burns in my mind is a quote that's attributed to Colonel Ralph Puckett, our most recent Medal of Honor awardee. And that was be proud, but never satisfied. And I think that's what we have to incorporate into our training. We need to be proud of the training that we're doing. We need to be proud of the accomplishments we've got. But if in the AAR, we don't talk about what we're gonna improve and what we're gonna get better on, we're doing a disservice to ourselves and our soldiers. So, so that, that model of just be proud, but never satisfied, I'm absolutely proud of the training we conduct. I'm proud of the, of, of the, of the effects that we create, but I'm not satisfied yet. 
because I know there's other things we can continue to do better. Well, let me ask you one last uh, cultural question, right? In 20 years of Iraq and Afghanistan, um, everybody got used to using radios, having ubiquitous information. If I need a flying overhead asset, I could do that. Uh, the Russians are going to contest in cyber. It's going to be extremely powerful electromagnetic capabilities, some of which we're beginning to feel, uh, as you mentioned, the disinformation uh, element of it. H how is the command the culture change, how are you engineering and helping engineer that culture change so that soldiers can operate on mission command without the 8,000 mile long screwdriver or, or even the 200 mile long tactical screwdriver that sometimes people felt they were getting? Right, so, so I mean, we incorporate that, we absolutely incorporate in the exercise, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, world-class cyber op for getting into the network um, or, candidly, turning the network off and having periods where you don't have access to the network, or you don't have access to your comms platforms. There are other times when the terrain and the environment does that for us. And, and so you'll see it where, um, you know, uh, they, a, a, something will happen in the battlefield that will cause uh, a unit to lose communication with a subordinate organization. We're going to train mission command right then and there because it's going to happen. And so um, both by, um, by uh, intentional injects to turn off and remove capabilities, that's one way we do it. Um, but then watching and learning as the environment itself creates that level of friction, that's how we're preparing our soldiers for it. And you know, that, and then just you know, going back through as the preparation for the larger exercises, watching units go through and just do that basic blocking and tackling of navigating with a map and compass, um, learning how to issue proper orders, uh, learning how to issue clear commander's intent and guidance, that then a subordinate leader can go out and execute uh, without uh, the constant, did you want me to do X, did you want me to do Y? Um, you know, we, it's said that Soviets only had one-way radios, right? Uh, we, we've, got two, we've always had two-way radios, so I'd argue we've been training that a long time. And that's in the culture of where we are. So uh, we just incorporate in everything that we do, and I think it's something we probably do subliminally, not even knowing at times that we're doing it. And, uh, and uh, fixing a broken track while you're at it instead of having somebody come and fix it for you. <laughs> that's absolutely, I could, sometimes you should come down and watch some of our large exercises. I could walk you through some of those maintenance bays where, yep, in fact, they absolutely are doing the, I, you know, I, in my in my head, I'm picturing that there was a up at Hovano Church in Grafenvir, young soldier that was fixing a broken track on a tank, and it would it had been raining for about three days. He was buried about waist deep in there, uh, but but those soldiers worked hard and tirelessly and put it back on because they knew that they had to. They had to get that tank back in the fight and nobody was going to do it for them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, anytime you, you are breaking track, it's always raining and you're <laughs> neck deep in mud. It's never when it's a nice day. It's never on flat terrain. Uh, <laughs> it's never in the motor pool. It's always going to be uh, in the worst spot possible, in the worst environment possible. But that's okay, because you know what I saw was also that one particular soldier, that was a highly motivated specialist. And I don't say that uh, flippantly. I mean, he was getting it. And it was inspiring to watch him just get after it. And when I stopped to ask him what he was doing, he explained it to me. And, uh, and boy, boy, he was America. He was America getting after that tank. It was great. It was great. Sir, thanks very much. Honor and pleasure and hopefully can come over and visit with you guys out there. It's an absolute terrific place. We'd love to have you. It'd be great. Thanks. Thank you, sir. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. 
Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.